You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 46 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, we are going to talk about racism, white privilege and white racial responsibility. And who better to talk to than Dixon White? And uh, Dixon White began posting videos online discussing racism and they quickly turned viral. And I'll play a short sample now from one of his videos and right after that we'll jump straight into the conversation. I'm coming to you here in my truck today. I got a Ford F-150 and I like it. Yeah, I'm a redneck. I always have been, but his rednecks reformed. Many years I was a racist and I didn't like blacks. I used to call me N-word and whatnot. White people are racist. Not all of them. But white culture is. Get off your fucking ass and do something about it. Speak up. Don't ever listen. Don't ever, ever ignore racism. If you hear something racist, fucking stand up as a white American. Take some fucking responsibility. It's the inaction that has always destroyed other peoples and other nations. It's the inaction. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. So uh, a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Well, uh, I go by the name Dixon White. I changed my name recently when uh, some viral videos that I made uh, went viral, or some videos that I made went viral. I'm a social racial justice fighter, and uh, just uh, am here, and that's what I've been doing. Um, I've been doing social racial justice work, I guess, for like the last 10 years. Uh, a lot of it on social media. I've written some things, some articles, and had a few things published, but uh, just uh, did the viral videos about five or six months ago uh, as an experiment, and they went viral, and it got me a lot of uh, attention, and it's been kind of a whirlwind of um, everything. <laughs> so my life's been kind of turned upside down, but um, I'm still trying to move through everything and keep um, the movement going as far as uh, fighting for um, social and racial justice. Were you surprised that your videos uh, went viral? Yeah, yeah, I had no idea that that they were going to go viral um, at all. When I made the videos, I just, um, it was like an experiment. I did them with a heavy southern accent, ha not having any idea that they were going to go viral, just kind of like an experiment and um, just basically just spoke from my heart. Um, I chose to do a heavy, strong Southern accent because that's kind of the way I used to talk. Um, so, and I lost my accent because I was bullied in college and I was kind of made to be ashamed of the, who I was and the way I talked. But I'm more comfortable um, doing characters. I'm an actor. And so I'm, I tend to come out of my shell when I'm hiding behind a character anyhow. So I did them thing, just for an experiment, put them on Facebook, and I thought I might get a couple of comments. And, uh, over time, they've had about 25 million um, views combined on, on Facebook and other social media. But um, 
And you uh, often mention that you come from uh, what's called redneck culture. Can you explain for people outside America what, what this is? Yeah, uh, you know, <clears throat> redneck is kind of a somewhat of a controversial term. I, I've been called a redneck before, and um, some people don't like that term. Uh, it doesn't bother me. I, I laugh when people call me that, but... Uh, Redneck is just basically a southern guy in America, a country rural person who, um, you know, tends to be a country by nature. We tend to hunt and fish and farm and ride dirt bikes. And I'm from a small town in Tennessee. And so uh, I was raised in that kind of culture. I was raised riding, riding dirt bikes and, um, you know, just kind of a country life. We had animals and we had 50 acres of woods behind our house and, you know, we had trails and a lot of things to do in the country as far as uh you know non-city things but um a redneck also has been associated with being a racist in some circles uh but the south in america is obviously where we had slavery so when you hear the term redneck you think about uh a southern male a southern white male uh usually is what redneck represents and uh being an american being in this culture, we kind of tend to live in a white supremacist culture, and obviously because of slavery was in the South, white supremacy, um, culturally speaking, has always been strong in the South. So when they heard a Southern man like me um, speak against white supremacy and to acknowledge, even just to acknowledge white supremacy, I think it was somewhat of a, a shock because people didn't expect that. It was like the, you know, the, the anti-stereotype of a redneck. So but I think it was refreshing for a lot of people because not many people had ever heard um, a country southern guy uh, like me um, speak the truth about race. It's very rare. Uh, it hasn't happened a whole lot. And so I just spoke it from my heart and it kind of hit a nerve with America, I guess, because uh, I represented that culture uh, of overt racism historically and uh, even today. Um, so I guess that's why it resonated. Yes, that's the that's the main reason why I found myself fascinated by your videos because I spent when I was younger a year in Oklahoma, which is uh, red redneck capital in a way, <laughs> for or it was for me, and uh, so I was very surprised uh, when I you know I didn't expect what was going to come out of your mouth uh, when you were speaking what you were speaking about. So I think that was. Uh, part of your success was that you were just breaking this stereotype. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It took me a while to figure that out because at first uh, I did not understand why people, why this was resonating, why so many people were, you know, applauding me and commending me and sort of celebrating me and messaging me. I was having, I had in three days, 5,000 Facebook friend requests and millions of views on Facebook and on YouTube and articles in the media and uh, all these things were happening. I didn't, honestly just didn't understand why. And then I started uh, asking other people to send in videos so we could have a conversation, try to have a social media conversation um, worldwide, if we could, about race and issues of race and addressing um, what I call white racial responsibility, <clears throat> you know, which is acknowledging and taking some responsibility, finding a moral compass racially to uh, address our system and culture of uh, white supremacy here in our country in America. So I had people sending these videos to, to try to address that. 
And I started watching their videos, and you know, I found myself uh, getting very emotional. And then I began to understand that you know, it's really a sensitive subject. And when you hear people talk about the subject from their heart, it really is powerful. And so uh, I finally understood why grown men were, and women, uh, hundreds, were sending me private messages saying, you know, I cried when I watched your video. And so I finally began to understand that because I found myself crying also when I watched their video. So um, it can be very powerful. It's something that we, uh, I think a lot of people need a lot of therapy uh, <laughs> with because we tend to, as white folks, we don't think about it. We like to sweep it under the carpet and, you know, pretend it's not there and uh, just enjoy our privilege that we have because of our skin rather than address these issues and think about these issues. And uh, so it's important to have the conversation, but it's more important to act. It's more important to to do something. And then thirdly, it's important to educate uh, other white people about white supremacy. So we have a responsibility to first acknowledge it, to act, to do something to address it, and then thirdly, to um, pass it on, educate other white people, you know, so. You often mention white racial responsibility. Uh, can you elaborate what you mean by this? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> white folks, Europeans, Americans, we, our culture created this system and this culture of white supremacy. Europeans went all over the world and they stolen, raped, and robbed, and committed horrific genocide that uh, many Europeans and Americans don't like to acknowledge or think about, but we did. For 500 years, we raped and robbed, uh, committed genocide against indigenous people all over the world, the Americas, Canada, the Caribbean, uh, Australia, everywhere. Uh, for 500 years, over 100 million indigenous people lost their lives. They were smallpox, uh, the musket, the sword, they were really murdered, raped, and robbed. Uh, so this is the reality historically that um, many European nations uh, and Americans don't like to talk about in our history books. We kind of have a revisionist version of history uh, that caters toward uh, white and toward European. And so we don't really get into the reality of what really happened. And uh, so that's part of, of facing that reality of white race responsibility. First, let's acknowledge what happened. Let's acknowledge the indigenous Holocaust. Let's acknowledge the 400-year Black Holocaust in America. Let's acknowledge those things, and then let's uh, let's begin to address them. Let's begin to take some responsibility. The probably, in my opinion, the most openly neglected thing in America historically and today is white supremacy. We have yet to really truly address it. We've never done anything to counter the propaganda and the lies, because white supremacy—it's the fabric of who we are in America. It's um, it's, it's in everything. It's in every institution, literally. Um, even if your parents are not racist, society, the media, the education will whitewash you. Uh, and white privilege will blind you from it because you don't feel it. You know, you don't feel white supremacy. The only thing you feel is the benefit of it. So we're, we're well insulated from it. And so we have responsibility to acknowledge it, to see it, to address it to take some action against it because we created this shit and we're going to have to be the ones to fix it, I believe, because that's the least we can do. And white America has never found a moral compass racially. We just never have. What we've been good at is denying, deflecting, projecting, um, living in delusion racially. It's a form of uh, what I call white American racial psychosis. Um, 
and not use the term racial. I'm not saying that white people are crazy, but I'm saying racially, hell yes, we're fucking off the charts crazy. Racially. We literally are uh, in America. <laughs> and so as white people, we've got to start doing something. And so I'm just trying to get people to start doing something, take some action. Um, you know, if we have to, if whatever, whatever that may be, if it's just holding each other accountable, if it's, um, if it's marching, if it's joining groups like uh, Black Lives Matter or so many other groups, but um, holding each other accountable, never, ever remain silent, never remain, um, you know, never be complicit, uh, never remain apathetic or indifferent or silent. We have to, um, to be vocal and we have to have zero tolerance for it. So it's time that America grew up, found some maturity, looked in the racial mirror and faced what we've done and faced what we have to do. And so I'm just trying to encourage folks and educate folks. I have this sense uh, when Obama became president that the media and many people thought that, okay, now, uh, now everything is equal. We have a black president and now we don't have to think about this anymore. You know, like it was an excuse. Do you feel the same? Absolutely. Um, and I had some of that too, uh, being white and being insulated from white supremacy. I had a lot of those feelings. Um, I just talked about this last night in a video, actually, that when uh, Obama, you know, when he got, <clears throat> when we had our nation's first black president, um, I broke down and cried like a baby in it. And I don't do that very often, but, <laughs> but when he got elected, I was uh, just uh, beyond, I was beside myself with emotion. And I just, I cried and I was overwhelmed with emotion and happiness and joy, and uh, it gave me hope. Uh, it was like a magical moment historically that we had went through all these things historically with white supremacy and slavery, and then we had found the um, intelligence and the humanity to elect a, our nation's first black president. And so I think it was 40% of the white vote that had done that. And so I was so proud of the 40% of white folks that had elected President Obama and uh, I think a lot of white folks had the idea that we're moving into some sort of new realm of of post-racism, uh, post-racial America and as, as quickly as that happened, all those delusions and all those, um, you know, the, those great feelings of, of happiness went away because that old fear of black power and that old fear of black retribution and that old fear of karma and that, you know, we bullied black people, we bullied people of color as white people. And so there's a lot of people that have been indoctrinated to fear black people, to believe a stereotype that, you know, don't, since we had slavery and since slavery ended, um, we've been trying to control black people. We've been trying to control the slaves that were released. And we still have some of that fear and that mentality that if we don't control black people, you know, if we don't keep them in check, that somehow they're going to do that dirty deed to us, that somehow they're going to punish us, because we know that we did a horrific thing to black folks. And so there's this culture and this feeling in, in, in some pockets and some circles in white America that, hey, you know, fear the black man. Don't, don't let them have power. Don't give them an edge. Don't let them get ahead, because if you do, the bullies are now going to become the victim. And so that fear of a black president became huge. And the Tea Party rose up and white supremacist groups rose up all over the country. And um, this tension racially grew. And 
white people just literally freaked the fuck out that we had a black president. And there were people saying all kinds of things about him. There was racial slurs and lies and propaganda about our president and paranoid delusions like you could have never dreamed. It was just insanity. And it's still happening now. Um, people are reacting to a black president still today. And I think that's one reason why we see so many things happening. Uh, you know, in our nation racially is because we simply have a black president and uh, people are scared. And so it's that fear of, um, of black retribution, I think, and fear of a uh, black vengeance, which is not founded in reality at all. If black people were going to do anything to us, they would have already tried. So it's so far from the truth. But, you know, there again, you have white supremacy playing out in these, um, these terrible ways. And the other factor about, about white, you know, um, problems and why we we can't seem to let go of white supremacy is because of greed so we have the fear and then we have the greed also that's another part of it but you know white people enjoy their positions and they don't want to give that up you know so the greed is another aspect of why we hang on to the lies and the notions and the propaganda of white supremacy what america needs is a black female president <laughs> <laughs> absolutely Maybe that would help some. I don't know. It might just be just as bad. <laughs> you have the patriarchy and the misogynists a lot less with the racist as well. So I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> But I wish we did. Um, many years ago, you, or you've stated in a video anyway, that uh, you yourself were racist. And then you changed your mind or your ways. Can you t talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, so I was raised... In that culture in the South of white supremacy, you know, um, we had slavery in the South. So also there's white supremacy where you have slavery, you have profound white supremacy and it's become global. But it's definitely uh, in the South in America, it's uh, pretty profound. And so I was just raised to use the N word, you know, I was always raised to when our house got dirty. Uh, people in my family would say this looks like where N words live and they wouldn't say the N word. They said the real word. I don't use that word. But um Uh, or there's an area in town where the black folks live, and we would call that inward holler. So, um, and this is just something that was just said matter-of-factly. It wasn't said, you know, with, with great hate or anything. It was just said as a like a, just a, a habit, just a casual thing. And the crazy thing was is that there weren't many black people where where I lived. Uh, there were some, but not a lot. And so, honestly, up until I was about 16, I never really gave it much thought at all uh, about the N-word or about the racism or about white supremacy. Um, and then when I went to college for the first time, I got out of that bubble of a small town in Tennessee and out of that environment. And um, I got bullied my freshman year pretty bad. It's pretty traumatizing. And I'd been abused and traumatized emotionally um, Growing up as a kid, uh, because of elitism, and in college, I began to realize why I had I had been abused. Um, I guess I was vulnerable because <clears throat> at, when I was in college, because I didn't have a lot of self-esteem back then. I was very young, and uh, these guys were older than me, and they were yuppies, and they were elitist, and I was different, and I didn't have, and I was weak. Uh, I didn't have any self-esteem because I'd been abused as a kid. So they they swarmed in on me, and. Um, beat me down just like they did in my childhood and I almost had a nervous breakdown I, I was failing at school and went through a lot of emotional problems and went into clinical depression but uh, I learned something from that experience though 
from being bullied as a kid and then being bullied again, you know, as a young man at 18 and 19 years old, I learned that the reason I had been bullied, well, a lot of it had to do with prejudice and elitism. And so I began to develop a hatred for elitism and prejudice. And so it made, it made me begin to question things. It made me begin to, what, there's actually a moment in time where I had all this kind of realized this and I took an oath of myself that I would always fight against it. And I would strive to not be a product of my environment. I would strive to find truth and reality socially. And so a couple of years later, I had a black roommate. And because my mind was open already, uh, and I had this hatred for prejudice and for elitism, uh, he was a, I was able to learn from him. And just simply living in Savannah, Georgia in 1989 was the, the, the racism in Savannah, Georgia. And this is in America, of course, but was um, <laughs> really bad. And watch what my friend Roy went through. Uh, in college, uh, as a as a black guy, just sometimes just walking to a a white building, a, a white neighborhood, being harassed by the police, he he literally got arrested twice, or he got taken to jail twice for being black. Um, I know that sounds like something crazy, but I mean that literally happened. He um, one time had forgot his wallet, and so they told him that he had stolen his own car, and they didn't let him get his wallet to prove who he was. They just took him to jail because you know he was black. They so then another time, another incident, uh, he got um, he got assaulted by a white guy who didn't want a black guy in his building. Uh, and the, the white guy who assaulted him called the police and lied and said he assaulted him. So he had to go to jail for that. Uh, so these kind of things I learned from him. And he, he took me under his wing and he taught me about race and he taught me about black culture and black history and, and uh, began to relate to it because I'd been bullied and I saw how that white America was bullying black America. And so he opened up my eyes to that. So I'm thankful for that. And so I began down the journey of, of racial and social, you know, justice. So trying to fight for that, you know, but is your, is your family or your friends from back in the day, uh, you know, were they still racist when you were doing this, when you were doing this change? Did it affect your relationships? Some of them were kind of still racist. Um, you know, they were never overt racist. They just were kind of the, the casual Southern ignorant racist, you know, and I was too. And, and they were um, for many years. And um, I started working on them pretty early on, um, gradually. And then when I was 28, I, I finally got over depression. From 18 to 28, I had clinical depression, which was a horrific time in my life. Um, got into uh, drug abuse and almost overdosed and just had no hope uh, for life until I met a young lady and I found hope that I could be loved. So I, I didn't know that I was lovable, to be honest, because I had been beat down as a kid and it had really affected my self-esteem and my uh, my ability to see my self-worth and my self-value. So finally I fell in love and I met a black girl. Uh, <laughs> When I met her on the phone, uh, it was a phone dating line back then, and I didn't know that she was black until after we had kind of started getting to know. She told me, and and I was like, oh, okay, well, cool. I didn't really, I didn't really think about it that much. I, I kind of liked the idea that she was black. I didn't go out looking for it, but it just kind of happened. But to make a long story short, um, my family was against me. There were three people in my family, not all my family, but there were three people that really were against me having a black girlfriend, and so. <clears throat> Uh, that was an issue, and it caused a lot of problems, but there are certain things that I did um, to react to that, uh, that kind of taught them some lessons racially uh, that weren't easy, but it, and it wasn't hard, but because I love my family, 
um, we went through that. And so they, they did progress. And um, I can say one of them at least has really progressed and has genuinely changed their heart. So it worked. It took a long time. It's been like 20 years, but, <laughs> but, it, but there has been changes and they have gotten better. So that's, that's great. I always had this theory that if every white man has a child with somebody outside the race, then racism disappears in one generation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I, I wish, you know, I think one thing we could do, if we could just teach the truth, um, if we could have, like, anti-racist education in, in, our, in our school systems, every child at a certain age has to learn the truth about white supremacy, about the lies of white supremacy. We have to have something to counter uh, the cancer called white supremacy. Right now the cancer is thriving. We have nothing really fighting against it in our communities, in our educational system. So what happens is um, our educational system reinforces that cancer and our media reinforces that cancer. So we have to have something to counter this, this cancer and nothing's happening. So if we could teach, if we could just do one thing, if we could teach our children the truth about race, in our educational system, in our school system, that could literally make a huge difference. But I don't, I don't know that anybody wants to do that. And I th- I've heard about, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's happening. I've heard rumors that it's happening. But, but if we could actually make that happen in all of our school systems with every single child, we would have a chance to actually um, deprogram our children and deprogram our society out of these lies. But until that happens, I don't know if there's going to be until white America takes responsibility, as far as our country, I don't, I don't know that anything's going to change. So, I don't know. I'm not very hopeful sometimes. It's also easy for a, a person that doesn't travel or doesn't have any friends outside their own race to, uh, to, to you know, like when you watch movies or every time there's always like some Arab or some black guy who's always the criminal... And if you never meet these people in reality, then, you know, that's what you think when you eventually meet them. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, and that's another part. I, I have six steps to white racial responsibility that uh, I posted online. But one of the steps is um, changing the way that we look at people of color and then moving into trying to find genuine friendships with people of color so that we can um, learn from them and listen to them. Uh, you know, but first we have to get past the stereotypes and, you know, but if you can make friends with, friendships with people of color and if they're willing to, to teach us, because they're not obligated to teach us, but if they're willing to teach us and you're willing to, to listen to them and to learn, then it can be really powerful. And I think that's an important part, too, of white race responsibility is just getting to know people of color, you know. So that's, that's a good point. It's a very, very good point, an important point. Also, the... the if black guys have, or black girls or black people have, uh, you know, if they get white friends also, the white friends can help them fight against whatever injustice they come across. So it also becomes like allies, you know. Yeah, yeah, we have to have allies and we have to be led by, by people of color uh, because white people racially uh, are the, we're illiterate. We're, we're just absolutely ignorant. Uh so we have to be guided by people of color because they have the full reality. We're insulated from it because of white privilege. So we definitely have to have their leadership and we definitely uh, have to have allies um, if we're going to, you know, 
make a dent in this thing. I, right now, it's just most white people don't take up you know any responsibility. Most people are not actively doing anything. They're just living their lives. Um, so nothing's happening. But if we could get, I would. I, I don't know. I've had people tell me that white people, maybe in America, maybe five percent to ten percent, three percent people are actually actively doing something to address, acknowledge, educate about white supremacy and about the lies of white supremacy. If we could get that number up to 50 to 60 percent of people taking white race responsibility, then we might have a chance, but not until then. So I guess we just try to keep trying to educate white people and encourage people to, you know, take that responsibility. In Europe here, where I am, it's kind of the same problem. The only difference is we don't really have any problem with black people uh, as far as the races go or the or the so you know many people aren't racist but they they have fear of foreigners and uh, usually it's people from the middle east or from the east block or you know romanian or gypsies or or people from india so it's these kind of people that that the white supremacy europeans are uh, talking about uh, because we don't have so many black people as in, in America but it's the same kind of uh, yeah mentality yeah xenophobia is another problem <laughs> you're so right yeah that's another problem in itself and just like Donald Trump when he was talking about the um, you know Donald Trump wants to uh, basically you know take all the 11 million illegal uh, people that live in this country and by force uh, send them out of America. And, you know, I think that's cruel. And he, 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 um, he's been married to many immigrants. Of course they're legal, but I, I just think that's cruel, but that's another form of xenophobia, you know, the fear of, um, of foreigners. And so Donald Trump is a great example of, of that sort of uh, xenophobic racism, you know? So, Yeah. Absolutely, and I I know from myself growing up that I I wasn't racist, but I I had some, you know, not correct ideas when I was younger, that I realize now were not like accurate, and uh, the the thing that really destroyed any ounce of racism in me was actually when I I went to Africa, and uh, I just realized you know these people are just like me and. You know, so I think a cure for racism is also if people like travel and they don't have to go all the way to Africa, but, you know, just leave your state or something, you know, but most people, they live in their same little town for their whole life. And of course, you're going to be afraid of anything strange, you know, it's true. And social media, you would think with um, there's so much information in social media nowadays, you know, on the Internet, there's so much information. And so the truth is out there. But the propaganda is also out there. So you have the truth in social media, and then you have the lies and propaganda in social media. And so people tend to go to <laughs> whatever they tend to relate to. And if you know, but yeah, absolutely, diversity is is our strength. You know, it's what makes us strong. You know, diversity is always makes us strong. And like, I used to live in Miami, and in Miami, seventy um, percent of the people there speak Spanish. Many of them are, are bilingual, but you know, in Miami, Florida. The preferred language and 70% of the language there is Spanish. And there are some people still today in, in Miami that are fighting to make English um, the dominant. They're trying to bring English back to Miami. But, you know, it's Miami is the, the land of the Cubans, you know. So 
it's not going to happen. And uh, there's so many white folks there that are that are trying to, uh, or at least were, and there's still some today, but they're trying to fight against this language thing. And they're saying that it's not American if you don't speak English, but that, that's not just not true. There is no official um, American language. You know, I, I would be happy if um, if different regions spoke whatever language. You know, Russian, Chinese. Spanish, you know, I don't care. Um, to me, diversity is our strength. And living in Miami and not speaking Spanish was a was a challenge for me. But it also, you know, it made me question a lot of things, and it made me understand what it, what it feels like to not fit in and to uh, and to not and, and to not be the majority for once. You know, so so yeah, I embrace Spanish. I've been trying to learn Spanish. I'm getting better. I can speak some now, but um, it was. Uh, it's interesting. Diversity is our strength, for sure. Yeah, and if you look at nature, um, the strongest natural areas in, on the world, like the Amazon rainforest, are uh, strong because they are diverse. It's the biggest diversity in the in the world in the Amazon rainforest. And another thing, uh, you know, when I went to Africa, um, what I realized there was, you know, the beggar, the police, the businessman. The woman and the, the normal poor guy, the working man, the president—all of them were black. Whereas, but in 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 the white country, you know, they usually the cleaner or working in McDonald's. But that's what what I thought that was changed for me when I when I saw that they're all, you know, they, you know, they're not like destined to be a cleaner. You know, here they're the president, they're the police, they're everybody. Yeah. So. You know, the media tries, to, and, and white supremacy in general, our culture and the lies of propaganda, they try to take away people of color's humanity. And so when you meet people of color and you see that they're just humans like me and you, you see their humanity and you realize, hey, guess what? They really are just like us. They're, they're not that stereotype. They're not that, you know, those stereotypes, those lies that we see in the media that we learn in, in our education, uh, that, that our culture teaches us. You know, they're just humans, just like us. There's no difference, you know. So, yeah, exactly. Have you had to face any repercussions from these white supremacist, supremacist people doing these videos? Yeah, uh, I had some death threats in the beginning, you know, and that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, and I've had... Uh, just a lot of hate, you know, especially on YouTube. Uh, I deleted some of the comments because they were so nasty. But um, YouTube is notorious for hate. And so, and I've had some private messages that were really nasty and, you know, please go kill yourself and just, you know, stupid stuff like that. And then, um, you know, and also another problem that I didn't really foresee coming and now I understand better, but um, there's been some black folks that were really against me too, a few of them. Um, not many, overwhelmingly, you know, I've had just tremendous support and love. And I think partly because I'm white, uh, you know, white people uh, are not scared of me. They don't fear me because I'm white. So I'm not saying anything different than people of color have been saying for 400 years. I'm just a white person saying it. So I'm being received well because they're not scared of me. Uh, black people were saying the same thing and they were dismissed uh, for, for many years. You know, I'm not saying anything any different or new or than what people of color have been saying. Uh, so, but, but because I'm white, um, they're not scared of me. So they tend to listen. And so if they will listen, I'll keep talking. But I have had some black people that were highly suspect, suspicious of me and suspect of me because I'm white. And I understand that. And I also understand that 
as white people, we make mistakes. And so, um, I try to take criticism and from people of color and, you know, I can't take every criticism and I can't take every direction from every person of color. And I've had some people of color, you know, demand that I do certain things a certain way and others tell me to demand me to do it a certain way. And so when you've got, you know, five or six different people demand you to do something, you have to pick one. And so somebody's not going to be happy, <laughs> but just, it, it, it's felt like that at times, but, uh, overwhelmingly, um, I've been really blessed with support and, um, uh, it's just just a handful of people that kind of tried to take me out of um, what I'm doing, uh, but but mainly the harassment has been you know white nationalists, white conservatives, and white supremacists. You know that's where the real the mass of the the hate. But still, I've got a lot of support, and so I feel very blessed and fortunate um, that people are at least willing to listen, and that's that gives me a little hope that we can. Um, Maybe make a change. I don't know. So we'll see what happens. You know, I, I honestly think that the majority of people are not racist. The The problem is that the people who are, they make more noise. You know, so so when you have had these negative comments, it's because of those types of people. You know, I mean, you know, I watched many of your videos. I haven't made one comment. Now I have you on the podcast, but I mean... And so maybe that's also a thing like um, these trolls, they make a lot of noise. So Exactly. Yeah, that, that's so true. Um, you know, a lot of white America may not hate black people, but it's that um, complacency. It's that indifference. It's that apathy. It's that silence uh, in times of injustice when white people need to stand up with and be allies. That is the problem. You know, that is the problem, is that we're going to have to do something. We can't just ignore this. It's a cost to us. It's a cost to white people, too. It's destroying us as well. And most white people don't realize that. But the cancer has already spread to us, this thing called white supremacy. It's destroying us, too. It's not just destroying people of color. So it's in everybody's interest, you know, uh, not just to protect people of color. We need to protect ourselves, too. This is a disease. And, you know, it creates mass hysteria, mass dysfunction. You know, you can't live out a lie in peace. There's no way you can do that. And uh, I learned that, you know, from watching, um, watching people in my own family try to live out lies. You won't find peace doing that. So there's a cost to white folks, and we need to, to realize that. So what do you have uh, plans for the future? Well, are you going to continue what you're doing now, or do you have any other th ideas to put in pl into place? Yeah, I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing now. Um, I'm going to try to do some more writing and more videos and see where it takes me. You know, I had some national media attention. I was on Nightline uh, a few a couple months ago, and, um, you know, I would love to have some sort of forum um, if I could take my message on a national level as far as like TV or whatever, um, I would love the opportunity to do that anywhere I can uh, just keep the message going and try to educate people as many as possible. Um, you know, I would love to do, um, I'm, I may start doing street interviews, just interviewing people and having conversations about race and posting them on, on social media. Um, but also one day I would like to make a film, um, my background is in filmmaking and acting and I'm an artist and, you know, just one of those creative type people. So, uh, I would love to make a film 
Um, and I have an idea for a film that I've had for many years now um, that would address white supremacy in America and I think could, could really be a, a powerful tool because um, I believe in the power of film, you know, and I always have. And it's always been film that has always impacted me the most. Uh, that's been the most therapeutic for me in life. Um, so I can tell you movies that I've seen that literally changed my life. So um, there's about 10 of them, <laughs> but they've always been therapeutic for me. So that, that's my, you know, my hope is just hopefully just to see what we can do and keep some, some, some kind of a movement, you know, keep it going and, and hopefully it can grow. Um, so I don't know. We'll keep trying. One film that I think, uh, touches on, on what we were talking about in a good way is uh, American History X. Have you seen that one? I have not seen that. I've had many people tell me to see it. Okay, so if people want to check out your, your YouTube videos, wh wh what's your name of your channel? Uh, Dixon, I think it's under Dixon White or Dixon D. White. I can't remember, but YouTube channel Dixon White. Also, uh, Facebook, I have... Um, uh, a fan page um, so you can go there you can find me on on Facebook on my uh, public uh, page so it's uh, Dixon D. White is the name and I'll also link to these sites uh, in the program notes well uh, thank you for having me no thank you and I uh, appreciate the work you do and I hope you continue and ignore those uh, trolls because they just make a lot of noise Yeah, and thank you for the work you do too. We we really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. In the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com, I'll post links to Dixon White's Facebook page and YouTube channel so you can check out his videos and keep up to date with his important work against racism. Now I found a very fitting song to close this episode by an artist band called Ihi, spelled I-J-I. And the song is called Friends Forever and appears on the album Soft Approach. You can check out more of Ihi's music at ijiij.bandcamp.com. That's ijiij.bandcamp.com. I'll post links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com to the music as well. Freedom is in the mind. Walking out the door of my old house and goofing down the street and onto swings. Didn't last that long, tumbling down into softest sand, rolling around. Are you my friend?
forever Are you my friend forever Are you my friend forever So sweet Remember in the way it worked Something dawned on me this morning When can I see you? After all the always waking up Planning my regular breakfast You walk into my bedroom Like it's nothing 